I'm Spencer Levy, and this is The Weekly Take. On this episode, we're looking at the nuts and bolts of the construction business at a time of uncertainty during the pandemic. We're taking less speculative risk today, and because of some of the uncertainty in terms of how this plays out relative to demand and underwriting, many of our capital sources are looking to get paid a little something extra for that or are looking for a value. That's Mark Wilsman of MetLife, a company with more than a century of investing in skyline-defining projects and one of the most prominent financiers in the global commercial real estate business. We are indeed doing some things different today. We have a new project that's under construction and we have decided to kind of take some actions that relate to what I would call a, a healthier building. And that's Matt Curry of the Trammell Crow Company, the largest commercial real estate developer in the United States. Two big builders and partners in construction breaking ground on one big question. Was construction built to survive this pandemic? That's right now on The Weekly Take. Welcome to The Weekly Take. I'm delighted to be joined by two real estate veterans and friends of mine that I've known for over a decade. Matt Curry, CEO of Trammell Crow Company, calling in from Pebble Beach, California, and Mark Wilsman, Managing Director and Head of Real Estate Equity at MetLife, joining us from his home in Short Hills, New Jersey. Matt and Mark, welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Spencer. Great to be here. Uh, great to have you guys. So, gentlemen, uh, not a lot of our listeners know exactly what Trammell Crow Companies do and what MetLife and real estate does. So, Matt, maybe you can uh, lead us off and tell us what Trammell Crow Companies does. Sure. We are ground-up developers of all types of commercial space, but primarily industrial, uh, multifamily, and office. Those would be our kind of three basic food groups. And then we do some other product types I would call more niche. We're active in 16 major U.S. markets, focusing on the larger markets in the United States, uh, plus London. We've got $15 billion of developments underway today and roughly $4 billion of developments in our pipeline. And I'm really glad to be on this with Mark because Mark is one of our um, most important and biggest partners. And we do a lot of business with institutional capital partners, just like MetLife. Well, Matt, that's a great transition to Mark. We'd love to hear a little bit more about what MetLife does on the real estate side. Uh, sure. So we invest on behalf of uh, the MetLife Insurance Company, as well as uh, other institutional investors like uh, sovereign wealth funds and pension funds, et cetera. We have a little over $30 billion of assets under management. An interesting thing about MetLife, which is a 150-year-old insurance company, is that we've been investing in real estate development for you know well over 100 years. Uh, some of our uh, earlier uh, notable investments were financing the construction of the Empire State Building and uh, Rockefeller Center uh, as examples. So we invest uh, really for the long term. We've been working as an organization, working with Trammell Crow for over 50 years. Uh, and of course, Matt and I have been working together shorter than that, but uh, still have done a lot uh, together over the last uh, decade or two. The general question is, why construction? It's the riskier end of the real estate spectrum, generally speaking. So we really see investment and development as Again, a way to access high quality assets at a cost basis that is less than usually what you'd have to pay uh, to buy something existing. So uh, you're certainly taking um, some market risk, 
but we have uh, uh, been able to do it in such a way that we manage our exposure to market risk uh, so that we're not ever biting off more than uh, you know we would want to at a given point in time. I'm going to now shift to the right here, right now, shorter term. We're in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis. Um, how does that change your point of view towards construction development risk uh, today, Mark? Well, I, certainly we're taking less speculative risk today. And because of some of the uncertainty in terms of how this plays out relative to uh, demand uh, and, and underwriting, you know, many of our capital sources are looking to get paid a little something extra for that or are looking for a value proposition today. So certainly it's impacting the new starts today. There continues to be extremely strong demand for industrial and uh, industrial development uh, is going to continue to occur. Certainly both you know, pre-lease, there are a lot of pre-leased opportunities today. And then there are also some speculative opportunities that actually make sense. Uh, we also think that uh, longer term that we're still underserved in housing and multifamily still makes a lot of sense. I think there's a lot of uncertainty with the office sector in terms of how things play out. We are not negative on the office sector, but I think there's a lot of uncertainty. And for that reason, you know, I don't see us investing in a speculative office deal in the short run until we see how this plays out. Well, Matt, same question to you. What has changed in the short term uh, from Trammell Crow's point of view towards construction? Yeah. Um, well, let me talk about the very, very short term, Spencer, and that is uh, we had some issues in March and April relative to the shelter in place orders that were in most parts of the country. So as a kind of ground up developer, we had to stop construction in some of our markets because the governmental authorities basically said, hey, until we lift these restrictions, there's going to be no commercial construction. It didn't kind of comply with policy. So we took a hit in some markets. You know, Seattle comes to mind. Uh, Pennsylvania comes to mind. A few others. Fortunately, since then, construction is basically back in full swing. I'd say we're 90% plus operational on all of our developments underway. So I guess that's good news. We're a bit concerned, obviously, if there's uh, further shelter-in-place restrictions, if they come back, second wave, et cetera, could impact us. As it relates to uh, product types, uh, pretty much in sync with Mark on that. Uh, and we, Mark and I talk a lot about this, by the way, is we had a lot of deals working in each of the food groups. But industrial has gotten through this COVID-induced recession very well uh, overall. So it's almost in a category by itself. Multifamily, agree with Mark uh, that it's a it's a good solid product type. There's going to be an impact and, you know, values are likely to go down. Rents are likely to go down. But I think overall they'll, they'll recover fairly quickly. So we're still actively looking at compelling new multifamily now, as it relates to office, we'll still do some office, but it's primarily going to be build-a-suit office or heavily pre-leased office. I'll take it one step further. Have you made any changes in the design of buildings uh, because of the COVID crisis for wellness or otherwise? It's evolving. Uh, we are indeed doing some things different today. I think of a project that we're doing now in Seattle where we have a new project that's under construction and we have decided to kind of take some actions that relate to what I would call a healthier building. And some of the things that we're either doing or considering doing on the project, just to give you a flavor, 
for how we're addressing some changes is air circulation and uh, using outside air. We're going to be using 100% outside air on that project in downtown Seattle, uh, not going to be recycling air. Uh, we think that's a healthier approach. In, the, in our air duct system, we're going to have some ultraviolet lights in the return air area that kind of disinfect uh, and, and kills various pathogens. We think that's a, a kind of a smart approach to this. And then there's a whole technology developing now. It already had started, but it's going into overdrive on touchless everything. So touchless doors. Uh, and that's not just the main entry doors. That's the garage lobby doors. That's restroom doors. All of those become touchless and probably uh, effectuated by kind of a mobile phone device. Uh, we're moving towards 100% touchless restrooms. We're doing things on elevators. Elevators can be a kind of a hot spot. So elevator cab purification systems uh, are kind of in process there. Mobile app call features for elevators so that you don't have to touch an elevator button. I'd say the last thing we're thinking about is some kind of infrared temperature taking devices uh, at building entries so that if necessary, we can make sure everybody who comes in is in kind of the right bracket of body temperature. So those are some of the things. It'll be interesting to see how they evolve, but I, I think to be able to lease office space in the future, you're going to have to to address the, the safety uh, issue big time. I was just going to add, you know, we've been actually very pleasantly surprised that the, the projects that we have underway have really been very minimally impacted, as most, uh, really all of them have been, you know, deemed essential work. And the other thing I just mentioned is that I've been very impressed with how uh, sophisticated the contractors have become, you know, really very early on in terms of screening people, uh, you know, coming onto the site, uh, health questionnaires, uh, uh, temperature screening, getting a, a little bracelet that entitles them to work on the site for the day, uh, and, and then the social distancing uh, that occurs, uh, you know, certainly outdoors, it's easier indoors, wearing masks and other protective equipment. That was instituted, you know, very early on in this process, and in many ways, um, you know, kind of as a forerunner to what we're seeing now with uh, opening office worker space. The general contracting uh, industry has really responded well. We've got over 100 projects under development uh, around the country, and very few of those have had any kind of COVID uh, outbreaks, shutdowns, et cetera, which is to me amazing. I thought that would be a big issue for us, but so far so good. Obviously, we'll have to see how that plans out, but they have done a, a masterful job, the, the GC business. Well, let me dig into two aspects of that. One is short-term costs associated with different procedures on the job site, and the second is long-term costs with changing your building systems. How are those costs being addressed? And I'll start with you, Mark, and I'll harken back to a conversation I think you and I had 10 years ago talking about changes that needed to be made for sustainability purposes, and the investment case wasn't made yet. Today, I think it has been made for sustainability. Is the case black and white now being made for wellness in the short and long term? I think it is. And, I, and, and interestingly, it's, it's easier and less expensive to incorporate features into buildings at the time you're developing them than you know, retrofitting existing properties. But I think that uh, uh, you know, more and more major tenants have been focused on everything in ESG and health and wellness, uh, certainly 
uh, at the top of the list. And right behind that is sort of, you know, how you're building, uh, uh, in essence, uh, is contributing uh, to the community around it. Uh, and it's easiest to make those enhancements and to make those changes and most cost effective um, at the time that you're you're developing. Well, I, I know that uh, change orders uh, are the, the, the bane of the existence. How do you deal with those types of change orders? Uh, starting with you, Matt. Yeah, there have been some cost implications. Interestingly, though, it hasn't been uh, runaway cost implications. You know, we have healthy contingencies in our budgets, and we haven't seen any of those short-term costs eat up all of our uh, contingency in pretty much any project. So, yeah, it's going to be more expensive. The delay, actually, is you know, oftentimes more expensive. So, added interest costs from your construction lender, et cetera, not being at 100% efficiency. The costs related to having kind of COVID procedures on the sites isn't that material, I'd say, uh, in, in the scheme of least our projects. Talking about some of the costs on just making a healthy building, so the long-term costs, I have been kind of monitoring that Seattle CBD building I mentioned earlier and all those initiatives there. And we just think the total of all those initiatives may add about 1% to the total project cost. So a lot less than you'd probably think. Uh, and again, um, manageable. So, so far, we're not having a lot of budget bust related to the either short-term or, or long-term cost issues. I would just add that uh, in a, the two large office buildings that we have underway are both, um, you know, substantially pre-leased, and the tenants have asked for some modifications, and they are, you know, they're paying for those modifications. So um, it isn't always the developers or the landlords. Um, Nickel and the other thing that that Matt just touched on uh, that that is a benefit uh, with this situation is that of course um, LIBOR has come down significantly and our interest costs have come down you know related to that so that has helped make up some of the difference and Mark you're actually um, MetLife wears a lot of hats you're on the equity side and we have the debt side any additional color you can give on uh, whether you're the borrower or the lender in situations that you've had to deal with over the last three months? Yeah, I, you know, certainly in the construction loan market, uh, the, the large banks have, have uh, pulled back uh, over the past few months. And, and you know, they've been very, very big in, in supplying you know, some of the, the relief uh, to the broader economy in terms of you know, the CARES Act and the, uh, uh, the PPP. And on smaller projects, smaller uh, development projects with more regional banks, that is a much more liquid part of the market uh, today. Putting together a syndication of banks to do a big deal is very difficult today. But if you are in a smaller situation dealing with regional banks, it's actually quite liquid. Let's shift now and talk a little bit about markets. And um, I know you've done many projects together. Um, so let's talk about a project you did a couple of years ago in Dallas. Um, the uh, uh, Park District deal. Mark, um, tell me a little bit about that deal and has your point of view changed on CBD versus suburbs? Really over the last, since the global financial crisis, we've been directing a lot of our investment in what we believe are sort of the growing uh, demographically attractive sort of next tier markets. And so those are, you know, the Seattle's, the Denver's, the Dallas, the Austin, the Charlotte, the Nashville, Atlanta, type markets. Our view is that the aftermath of COVID is going to make those markets uh, even more attractive uh, going forward. So, you know, I think, I do think that the big cities are going to recover. I, I, I think that 
uh, people are social animals and they're going to be attracted to everything that big cities provide um, again uh, once they feel safe. But if you look at quality of life, cost of living, you know, lower tax burden, uh, and, you know, certainly, you know, the easier ability, at least at the margin, you know, to kind of get around uh, some of these, you know, smaller next tier cities, um, I, we think that they're going to continue to be the, the, the beneficiary of movement out of California, out of uh, the Northeast, and, uh, you know, good markets to invest, uh, in, you know, in, in front of. Um, in, in terms of the question of, you know, CBD versus suburban, I think in the short run, this is going to create an interest in suburban, you know, space. But I, I think that it isn't going to significantly change our view, um, at least as it relates to um, suburban office, for example, in places like Chicago or the metro New York area. We think that's going to be maybe a, an attractive short-term play, um, but longer term, um, you know, we like these growing cities. Matt, what's your point of view? Yeah, well, I'll start with the Park District deal. And the reason I like that deal is it's a mixed-use project and right on an urban park. Our mantra is the best site uh, in the best submarket. We gravitate towards those, even if we have to pay more for the dirt. And I would say that applies either in a CBD setting or in a suburban setting. I'm not a big believer. I may differ from Mark a little bit on this. I'm not a big believer that this is going to really change in the midterm or long term the dynamics of suburban versus CBD. If we go suburban, which occasionally we do, we're going to try to go in an environment that's uh, kind of a work, live, play environment where there's a lot of amenities. You're probably next to some kind of transit center. And it's almost a, uh, an urban slash suburban location. But has transit-oriented development gotten less valuable today because of COVID? Yeah, I, in my mind, I, I don't think so. I think that um, uh, there's always value to being able to provide you know, multiple modes of getting around. And the younger generation, many, many folks uh, have no interest in owning a car. Uh, and, and so I think it's always an advantage to, uh, to be close to transit. Our research group uh, a year or two ago uh, did, did a study in San Francisco and basically showing sort of the relative cost of using a, a rideshare service, a pooled rideshare service versus public transportation, and then comparing that to being, you know, the, the higher expense of renting an apartment next to a transit location versus a more outlying location. But I think in most cities around the U.S., uh, there's still a great advantage to being uh, close to, to transit. Yeah, I'm with Mark on this one. I think that obviously going to take somewhat of a, a pause will be less over the next six, eight months, but I just think it's temporary and uh, folks will get back on mass transit again, the same numbers that they used to. Uh, it's less costly for those commuters to go on transit than it is to use a car and drive uh, on a freeway and pay a bunch of gas. Uh, and the amenity cluster, Mark mentioned it a little bit earlier, that is a pretty compelling uh, lifestyle uh, situation too. So let me ask one more construction question. So a lot of times the United States is a leader in certain things in commercial real estate. Sometimes it's a laggard. And one of the areas where I think we are a laggard is some of the green technologies that are used in Europe uh, to build buildings. And these are things using natural building materials or modular construction. Uh, 
Um, do you see some of those construction techniques from Europe, green or otherwise, uh, coming here? And some of them, like modular, might be cheaper. Matt, what do you think? Well, let's divide it between those two. I'd say as it relates to sustainable buildings, and as I said, we've uh, bought a multifamily uh, developer in London, and I was really surprised to see how committed and how much effort they spend on sustainable building and kind of the ESG area. So yeah, absolutely, Europe is leading the, the charge on that. Primarily because a lot of the big pension funds over there, the Dutch funds and others, just demand it. They say, hey, we're not going to invest in a new project unless it ticks all these boxes. Uh, so they're much more adamant about that than I would say the pension funds over here in the U.S. So that's helped drive that sustainability uh, evolution there. I do think that that's going to migrate over here over time uh, because it's the right thing to do. And we at Trammell Crow committed to sustainability. And it's probably going to continue to lag a bit to Europe, but it's it's ultimately going to get over here um, in, in a similar fashion with maybe a, a, a two, three-year delay. Relative to modular, you know, I've never been a big proponent of modular. I've been hearing about modular and how it was going to be a game changer literally for my entire career, 40 years in the development business. And it has just not really taken off in any, I would say, uh, kind of more upscale commercial developments. In Europe, yeah, you, you see it. I'm I'm not a believer, uh, at least thus far, that modular construction is going to be a, a game changer over here. If it's proven, it's effective. I could change my mind, but but right now, uh, I just think it's it's overhyped. Mark, similar question I just asked Matt, which is: Look, MetLife is not just a U.S. investor; you're a global investor, you're a global lender. Uh, what are some of the global trends you might have been seeing in some of your uh, lending in Australia? or in Mexico, uh, where I'm friends with uh, many of your colleagues down there as well, uh, that think uh, might be instructive and might be coming here? Well, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I think, I think in a lot of cases, um, uh, and ESG is probably the, the notable exception where the U.S. really lags Europe, but I think in a lot of uh, areas of technology and building design, uh, I think the U.S. is a relative leader. And when I travel outside the U.S., I, I often get asked about things that we're doing here in the U.S. One that has been talked about a lot is sort of multi-story industrial, uh, which is something that, uh, for example, is very common in Japan but really hasn't been executed uh, in any significant way successfully uh, in the U.S. And there's some reasons for that, uh, mostly because we like big trucks and we like a lot of space and we're just not you know, used to dealing in smaller, more compact uh, kind of environments. But I think overall, uh, uh, you know, the U.S. is a leader in technology. And oftentimes I get asked about what we're doing in the U.S. and the application uh, outside the U.S. Let me uh, wrap up this with a mentoring question, because all of us have been in this business a while. We all got a few gray hairs. Uh, but there are many of the younger professionals in our business who don't. This is their first downturn. Um, and quite candidly, many of them are scared. Matt, what advice would you give younger professionals about how to cope through this crisis and how it might compare to prior ones? Good question. Uh, we have continued to hire young people into our business despite this in environment. And the reason is um, 
you get into the real estate business for the long term, not the short term or the medium term. It's a, as they say, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So the advice I would give young people is uh, be resilient. You're going to take some uh, body blows uh, during this cycle. Uh, you're going to work on a lot of problems. I mean, there's going to be some tough stuff to have to get through, but uh, be resilient. Feel confident that you're going to get to the other side of this. And also, um, to the extent you can do a really good job on the really tough assignments that aren't fun, uh, that will separate you from the pack. Uh, because I know as we look at promoting folks at Trammell Crow, those folks that have taken on the toughest assignments that aren't exactly uh, fun, if you do a good job on those, you're going to have a more... Uh, favorable career path than the folks that kind of veered away from that. And Mark, same question to you. Uh, what advice would you give younger professionals who are dealing with a crisis for the first time? Well, I think this is just a wonderful learning environment. I think the most valuable lessons I learned uh, uh, have been in times of challenge, not in times where literally anything you touch you know, works out because the market is strong and the tide is raising all boats. Um, you know, don't get uh, distressed. Um, change creates opportunity. Um, this is a long-term business and a long-term uh, asset class. Um, there's certainly lessons learned when times are better in terms of uh, uh, managing uh, how far you get over your skis, how far uh, you push leverage, how far you, you know, test markets that are unproven, uh, et cetera, because those are usually the circumstances that cause you to uh, uh, endure the biggest challenges when things soften. We're going to come out of this. Uh, there's, there's no doubt in my mind. And, uh, and, and I think there will be some lasting changes, but I think that a lot of the fundamental things that make the real estate business successful uh, are going to still be there when we get through this. Well, I think those are words to live by. A lot of the things that made the business successful will be there uh, once we're past this crisis, and I agree with that completely. So on behalf of The Weekly Take, Mark Wilsman, Matt Corey, thank you for joining us. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Spencer. For more information, go to CBRE backslash The Weekly Take. Until next time, I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, be well. Be well.